having those maxims and that practice just at your fingertips, so to speak, on the tip of your tongue, where you can say to yourself, no, you know, I made a commitment today. So just that continuous, you know, sticking with it, like we were just talking about, I think that is crucial. So putting all of these together into a package, you know, I don't think it's just one particular exercise. I think it's mm-hmm. all of them put together that's going to make a difference. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And in this conversation, I speak with Brittany Polat. Brittany is a past Stoic Conversations guest and author of Journal Like a Stoic. She recently composed a new set of meditations entitled Deeper Connections. The focus of these meditations is cultivating compassion, especially in the context of relationships, relationships with ourselves, loved ones, coworkers, and more. So do check that out in the Stoa app. Here is our conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for inviting me. Well, what does compassion mean for the Stoics? Well, this is a really interesting topic because the ancient Stoics didn't speak directly of compassion as we typically talk about it today. You know, we think about compassion maybe from a Christian or Buddhist context. But what is interesting is that they had similar ideas. So I think we can reach back into the ancient Stoic literature and find similar concepts such as kindness, understanding, goodwill. They used very strong and powerful words for the good, healthy emotions, the eupatheiae, such as welcoming and cherishing. And so I think we can apply these ideas, even though they're not, they don't correspond directly to compassion. I think they're extremely close. And they set us up to have the proper kind of mindset that I think we mean when we talk about compassion. So this very strong pro-social emotion and engagement with others. Mm -hmm. So how would the Stoics add or slightly amend some of these common notions we have about compassion, which, as you say, probably emerge from a slightly different historical lineage? Right. So when people speak about compassion, they can mean different things, right? So Um, Some people mean something close to empathy, such as feeling someone else's pain. Some people mean something a little bit more expansive, such as just showing care and kindness and consideration to others. So I think what the Stoic account, obviously we're not talking about feeling someone else's pain because we don't do that in Stoicism. Stoicism does not encourage us to feel negative emotions such as guilt or sadness, this kind of thing, but rather to place human nature and the human condition in the broader context of things so that we understand that these things are a part of life and they happen to everybody. And so we don't become overly invested in the suffering of ourselves or others, but place them in the broader context of the beauty of life and the bigger picture of nature and the cosmos. So, you know, there are different definitions of compassion, but I think stoicism can really help us to place ourselves in the bigger cosmic picture and not get tangled up in the emotions of feeling someone else's pain. So it's very helpful from this perspective to getting us outside of this um, this very empathic way of compassion, but moving us to a rational version of compassion. Right. I suppose many people, though of course not all when they're talking about compassion these days, are thinking about a kind of 
empathy, which involves feeling what the other person is experiencing in order to understand what they are experiencing and then uh, move, ideally moving into some kind of action or care from that sense of feeling. Do the, how, how, how do you think about the stoic view in contrast with, with that one? Right. So instead of feeling someone else's pain, we take a rational compassion, or this is this is my term for it. Mm-hmm. So we have a kind of cognitive understanding that um, people do feel certain types of pain and that we can take action to help them without being drawn into this pain. So one common example is if you are comforting a child who's afraid of thunder, a thunderstorm, right? This is a natural fear in children. You can comfort the child without yourself feeling that same fear. And in fact, you're going to be a lot more effective at comforting her if you are not afraid yourself, right? So mm-hmm. if, if you are fearful yourself, it's going to be much harder to calm her down because we can pick up, we can sense people's you know, underlying emotions. So when we ourselves are not privy to those kinds of irrational fears, and the Stoics would classify all types of fear like that as irrational. They're not based on a proper understanding of the world. They're based on things like a fear of death, which according to Stoics, you know, we should not be afraid of death. It's an indifferent. So when we understand the world properly, we can reframe those common negative emotions such as sadness, frustration, guilt, and fear, and we can put them in a more positive context. And when we ourselves are calm, we are going to be much more effective actors at deciding you know, how to help people, making rational decisions, and also just connecting with others and understanding them cognitively, understanding what they are going through. We're always going to have better capacities when we're not under the sway of negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such an important thought. I think many people assume that in order to offer proper care, you need to experience whatever condition or situation someone else is suffering from. But as you note, there are a number of examples where that's not the case. Uh, and this perhaps the argument or assumption that many have that one needs to feel the same way to offer care is mistaken. The thought that it's a, it is, a, of course, important to understand to the extent that one can what the other person is experiencing, but that needn't be caused by feelings or making the exact same judgments that the other person is making about their whatever is occurring. Yes, exactly. And so when the Stoics think about compassion, do you think this is a, a reasonable first first pass where of, of course, they have a number of different of pro-social um, concepts in play, but there's always that element of understanding to the extent that we can what others are experiencing and having this pro-social outlook, seeing ourselves as a part of a bigger picture, as truly social animals uh, at the grand scale and at these smaller scales as embedded in all of these, all of these relationships. Uh, and stories, and our you know our role is to be excellent in those relationships, and that that is that the stoic focus, as it were. How do you think about that that gloss on stoic compassion? Exactly, yeah. So I think this is where the rational side of our understanding comes in. 
You could call it social intelligence. You can call it affection and care for people, paying attention to other people. So it's not that we want to be unfeeling or ignore other people. Absolutely not. We want to be pro-social, but in a way where we understand someone else's, what they're going through, maybe their perspective. And we also want to limit our judgments to the extent possible. This is something that Epictetus talks about. So he says, don't make hasty judgments. You know, don't, when you go to the bath, so he's talking about the ancient Roman bathhouses where people bathed publicly and apparently it could be a frustrating experience. You could get splashed by someone else or kicked or your clothes could get wet or something like that. So he says, don't judge other people. Don't say that this person bathes hastily or don't say that this person does not bathe well. Just say that they're bathing fast. You don't know what judgments are leading them to, to do this action, right? And until you know the exact judgments that is leading someone to act this way, you cannot condemn them, right? So it's about understanding the judgments that someone else is making. We can try to do that with the understanding that there is so much that we do not know about what's going on in other people's lives or what they're thinking or their motivations about things. So to the extent that you do know what's motivating them, you know, is it greed or is it just tiredness or whatever it is, to the extent that you can know that, you know, you should be very careful in judging because there may be things that you also do not know about this person. So we tend to make really knee-jerk snap reactions about people. And the Stoics tell us, wait a minute, you know, you do not have the complete picture here. So just hold on to that thought and, and don't run with that and don't let it get carried away with you. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's excellent. So I suppose when you think about understanding the situation the other person is in that you are in, whatever it may be, part of that involves realizing that uh, there are many things you do not know. And there's this line about uh, poker players where the best poker players know how good they are in the sense that, uh, and I think this is true for many domains, but in the sense that they understand if you go to that table, they're like. You know, you're likely to come out with a lot of winnings because of how good the other players are, how good you are. But maybe this other table with many veterans and proper sharks is not somewhere you should you should sit down. And I think there's, uh, if you think abstract that away from the poker example, I like that phrase just because it's a useful reminder to have that Socratic take or understanding that you have limits. Um, but part of that being uh, good in whatever role, whether it's poker, being in a relationship, what have you, is uh, acknowledging those limits and then acting accordingly. You don't need to surpass those limits, of course. You don't, you, all you need to do is uh, what is what is realistic. Exactly. The most underrated virtue, humility. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, when what practices then do the Stoics have for becoming a more compassionate person? How, how do you think about that? Well, on the one hand, they have some perspective-taking exercises where you're literally trying to change your perspective. One of the most well-known is the view from above, where you kind of get outside yourself and take a broader view and extract yourself from the immediate situation. So you can think about, okay, the, the background of what's going on and compare it to everything else in the world that's going on. And it kind of 
it literally makes you think about things differently. Oh, maybe this person is doing something. It's not the end of the world. Maybe they have another reason I don't know about. And it helps you to think about things from the other person's point of view. Another well-known exercise is gratitude. So Marcus Aurelius talks about this. He says you should think about, you know, be grateful for the people around you and think about some of their good qualities, whether it's energy or modesty, whatever it is, identify it and spend some time appreciating it and being grateful, even if that person is not perfect. And we're probably not around perfect people, right? We ourselves are not perfect and we don't expect the people around us to be perfect but we can still identify wonderful things about them, wonderful attributes. And so spending some time every day thinking about those things can really change our perspective as well. And again, restraining some of those knee-jerk value judgments, right? Maybe they're not doing something wrong. Maybe if you knew what was motivating them, you would not condemn them at all or think harshly about them. So just make sure that you, you know, kind of reframe understand when you're making those judgments and try to reframe them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One way I think about stoic mindfulness is in terms of you have perspective and principles. So perspective mm -hmm. encourages you to look at particular things, look at them in a specific way. And then another way, uh, pr principles involves bringing the stoic philosophy to bear. So when you do the view from above, you're shifting your perspective, of course, seeing yourself as part of a greater whole in time and space as part of a bigger story. And uh, that makes, ideally, I think, can help make what's important more obvious and let exactly. the, tri the trivial fall away. Exactly. How, do you, how, do, how does that come into play in, in particular relationships uh, for you and thinking about the view from above? Um, well, so let's take the example of a romantic partnership where, you know, it's really easy. You live with this person, probably you see them every day. You know, it's easy to, <laughs> to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Oh, he didn't take out the trash. Oh, she's nagging me, things like that. And it can be so easy to get caught up in the daily grind. So by taking a new perspective, we can think about not only the positive qualities of our partner, you know, what made you fall in love with them in the first place? What is something that they do wonderfully? You know, do they support you? Can you let those little things slide? You know, you can reframe and say what's important in this relationship. And I think one thing we can also do, which we don't do often enough today, is value the relationship itself as a type of good. And this is something that the Roman Stoic Musonius Rufus talks about. He says your partnership should be an alliance, right? You can create a beautiful partnership by valuing what you can give to each other, not just valuing your partner in themselves, which of course you should do as well, but also valuing what you're creating together, thinking about your relationship itself as something that's worth pursuing. So when you take this perspective, again, it's a type of perspective shifting, but it makes it worth working for. So for example, you might think of your career as something that is worth working towards. Well, you can think of this relationship as something worth investing your time and energy and emotional energy into as well. Right, right. And I suppose that brings into the point about principles where Musonius Rufus also encourages you to think about, you know, what's the purpose of a romantic relationship? Or, you know, he has a whole list of things. What's the purpose of furnishing? What's the purpose of food? 
Um, <laughs> but also, of course, when it comes to these, these social roles, I think you can remember that purpose more, more clearly, perhaps when you bring to mind moments at the beginning of the relationship or thinking about how the relationship fits into the arc of your lives in the case of a, a romantic one. And I think that principle sort of gives you these ideas for this basis for making decisions and the perspective shift is that focus on the relationship or the ideals that you want to want to realize in your partnerships. And what, what else comes to mind for in terms of becoming a more compassionate person? So we have view from above, focusing on gratitude, these positive aspects of others. Right. Well, one other thing you can do, one other practical exercise is what William Irvin calls negative visualization. So you can imagine what your life would be like without this person, for example, or without this relationship. I call it the it's a wonderful life technique, because if you think about the holiday movie, it's a wonderful life, you know, the character played by Jimmy Stewart, he is about to commit suicide, and then he's saved by an angel, and he gets a chance to see what things would have been like if he had never been born. So to me, it's similar thinking about, you know, if this other person had never been born, or if you had never met them, they had never come into your life in some way, what would your life be like? And you know, almost always, if this is someone you're close to, someone you've chosen to spend your life with, your life would be impoverished without this person, you know? So thinking about what things would be like without them makes you suddenly realize, oh, I wouldn't get to see their smile every day, right? So mm -hmm. I think this is a really wonderful technique that can make us more compassionate in those close relationships. And of course, you know, when we talk about compassion, a lot of times we kind of have this big cosmic idea of compassion. Like, you know, we need to feel compassion towards other people on the other side of the world. And we spend a lot of time cultivating compassion towards people of, you know, that we don't know, people who, are, you know, are undergoing genocide or this kind of thing. And that's wonderful and necessary. But I think sometimes we actually overlook compassion towards the people that we live with or that we see every day, or maybe a colleague who annoys us a little bit at work or a neighbor whose political views we don't agree with. And actually, these everyday interactions are crucial as far as being virtuous and creating a better society. You know, it's not as if you can just give money to someone on the other side of the world and be mean to your neighbors. That doesn't make you a compassionate or an emotionally generous person. It actually, I think you have to start with the people who are closest to you and then expand outward from there. If you can't love the people you live with, can you truly love anyone at all? So I think when we talk about compassion, we have to remember both of those. Right. I suppose, you know, you think about compassion, you think of these models of compassion, whether it's Mother Teresa or someone who gives away all of their, an exceptional amount of their belongings for the sake of others who they've never met. But uh, in the best case, compassionate people have those ideals, but also realize their you know, their virtues, their characters manifest in ordinary day-to-day -day decisions uh, as well. I agree. Yeah. Um, and, and there's always always that danger, I think, if you if one moves to the ideals too quickly that you're, as you divorce from actual people. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Um, something you touched on with the focus on gratitude, focusing on the positive attributes of others, is that we can make this shift from a one that is more negative or critical, focusing on the vices or deficits that others have to one that is more abundant, what you call an abundance perspective. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yes, this is something that I've had to work hard on in my own life as someone who's a perfectionist and has really high standards. And I think a lot of people who are attracted to stoicism kind of feel the same way or might have some of the same issues. So, you know, you have high standards for yourself and then you expect other people to kind of live up to the same standards that you set for yourself. And when they inevitably fall short, you just think of, oh, you know, they didn't measure up. They did not act with courage in this situation or they did not act with wisdom. And so you're constantly kind of belittling the other person in your mind, even if you don't say anything about it. You know, it, it causes you to feel negatively towards them. And eventually that builds up, right? So I call this a deficit perspective where you're always kind of thinking, oh, you know, they could do better. So what we want to do if you're that kind of person is shift your mindset to an abundance perspective. So instead of setting a high ideal and then thinking about how they don't measure up, you know, Every day when you wake up, say, you know, this person is doing this for me. I'm waking up with this person in my life and I'm so happy I get to talk to them over breakfast or I get to work beside this incredibly smart person, this hardworking person, you know? So instead of constantly kind of thinking about the things that they do wrong, we just flip it and we, we give more, you know, salience to the things they're doing right. It's not that we ignore that they're not perfect, right? We can still acknowledge, oh yeah, they forgot to take out the trash or they missed that deadline or whatever we did. It's not that we're kind of closing our eyes or hiding our heads in the sand. Yeah. And we can still acknowledge that and say, oh, you know, could you take out the trash? I asked you to do that already. Would you mind doing it now? But not from a perspective of, you know, oh, this is the worst thing ever. We're doing it from the perspective of, oh, I'm so glad that we get to work on this together. Again, if you're thinking about relationships in terms of what kind of partnership you're building or the relationship itself, it's a lot easier to do this abundance perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the best examples of that from that we have in Stoic literature is the first chapter of the Meditations from Marcus Aurelius, where he notes the uh, virtues, what he's learned from his grandfather, grandmother, adopted father, uh, tutors and so on. And you, I think you can see how attending to these positive attributes of uh, the, the, the fact that Marcus Aurelius attended to these people's positive attributes gave him the ability to appreciate them, learn from them, and likely enrich his relationships uh, with them uh, as well. I love that example. And one thing that we can learn from Marcus's book one also is we know from the historical record that these people were not perfect. And mm -hmm. yet Marcus is able to pick out good things about many of them. You know, some of them, he just has one or two small things that they did that he's grateful for. And yet he can still pick those out. You know, there are some people that he's notably silent on, such as the Emperor Hadrian, whom he knew. He doesn't say anything good about him. But for most people, he's able to pick one or two good things. And then some people, of course like his adoptive father, who was the Roman emperor before him, he's very, very complimentary. 
So you can tell Marcus recognizes which people are true role models for him and which aren't. But even those who aren't, he's still able to appreciate them and draw benefit from them. So I think that is, you're right, that's a, a wonderful illustration of this technique. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, I think, you, so you have someone like Lucius Verus, who is the co emperor with Marcus Aurelius, his adopted brother. And that's someone who is a very different person from Marcus, <laughs> uh, likely uh, less good emperor. emperor right. um, <laughs> But you, nonetheless, Marcus is able to pick out some positive traits from Lucius uh, Verus. And I think there, there is something admirable in, in that ability. Yeah, it's interesting. Confucius says something similar. He says, you know, whenever I walk with someone, I find in them a teacher. Some of them I learn good things from and some I, you know, I learn what not to do. But from everyone, and this is a stoic, you know, maxim as well, you can learn to draw benefit from any person, from any situation. So this is something that Epictetus talks about and Marcus Aurelius as well. Epictetus calls it the wand of Hermes. He says, you can use this, you know, this is a metaphor, of course, use your wand and whatever you touch turns to gold and you can find something beneficial from it. So I think it's interesting that this general stoic principle, we can apply it to the people in our lives as well. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I suppose you, you think about it classically, it appears in stoicism, when it comes to say managing adversity, you know the, the obstacle is the way. You know the impediment to right. action advances action. You have that that thought. But per perhaps even a, a better better examples are when it comes to uh, managing our, our relationships with others and being able to see that uh, yeah there is there truly is something to learn from everyone, both in the positive case, people serving as role models, maybe not entirely, but specific traits that they possess, uh, and also in certain ways uh, as anti-models. Yes, absolutely. Are there, are there any other uh, passages or thoughts from uh, the Stoics that illustrate this uh, perspective for you or, or that you've been thinking on these lines? Well, I think we could mention briefly what the Stoics said about friendship. So we've talked a little bit about romantic relationships, but they did have a lot to say about other types of relationships as well. So Seneca talks about friends, for example. And, you know, friends are different from romance in that you may not be spending, you know, most of your time with them. But Seneca says, consider every question with a friend, but first consider the friend. After you make a friend, you should trust him. But before you make a friend, you should make a judgment. So basically what he's saying is, you know, think very carefully about who you admit to your friendship. But once you say, okay, this person is trustworthy, then you should really bring them into your, you know, into your heart and consider yourself very close to. So we are drawn to other people and we're drawn to friendships. And he also says that we should make friends not because it's instrumental, not because we're getting something out of it, but just because it's beautiful to have a friend. And that's what humans do. This kind of makes us who we are, is our naturally affectionate and social disposition. So I think it's really interesting when we're talking about relationships to, to think about just the beauty of having a relationship in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose there's, there's that, that thought you mentioned earlier of uh, Musonius Rufus thinking about crafting relationships for their own sake and thinking about how, how those are more than the, the people who, who make them up uh, in right. a way. And I, I also love this, this, that line from Seneca where you 
you think about, you think carefully about who your friends are going to be. And then once you've made a judgment, completely trust them and uh, aim to be as, as good of a friend as you can. I think there's that. It's, it's, I think it's an interesting example of how self-trusting yourself and trusting others can often come together where you know, you've made the judgment that this person is your friend and that's your judgment and you'll stick with it and fully trust them uh, and devote yourself to them um, is a matter of trusting others and trusting your faculty to, to make uh, good judgments as well. Yeah, I really like how you mentioned judgment both for yourself and others because that's what Epictetus says as well. He says, anyone who wants to be a good friend should work to have correct judgments. And of course, that has kind of a double meaning. First of all, it means that you yourself develop good judgment, but it also means that you're able to tell what other people's judgments are. So this brings us again back to this idea of understanding other people, both for feeling compassion and as a type of social awareness and social intelligence. So when you know why other people are you know, making what their motivations are or why they might be doing something, then you're much better able to decide whether to admit them into your friendship and to trust them or not. So again, you know, we're not all knowing, we're not omniscient, but the, to the extent that we can understand other people's motivations and judgments, we should definitely try to do that. So that brings up a, a natural follow-up where sometimes people do violate our trust. And uh, I suppose that's one of the positive upsides of trusting people is you get to you get to learn more about who you, you know, you get to improve your judgment about, about trust, of course. But then there's this other aspect, a related concept of forgiveness. And when people violate your trust, of course, there's a question, what should you do? But does, how does forgiveness play into this picture uh, at all? How do you see that? How do you see that occurring? Yeah, well, one of the most interesting examples that the ancient Stoics talked about was Medea. So they apparently were fascinated by the figure of Medea, who was a tragic figure in ancient Greek drama, who killed her own children to take revenge on her unfaithful husband. Now, of course, killing your own children is one of the most heinous crimes imaginable. It's one of the worst things anyone could ever do. And the Stoics were fascinated by Medea's kind of thought process going into this. They looked at the dramatization of, you know, Medea's inner dialogue as she knew that what she was doing was wrong, and yet she still thought it was beneficial for her to do this. She knew she would hurt herself, but her desire for revenge was so strong that she did it anyway. So what's interesting about that is they thought that she is still someone who is worthy of compassion. Epictetus explicitly says should we put her to death? No, we should feel pity for her. So Epictetus uses this word pity, what we would say today as pity, a few times. And again, the Stoics didn't really have a concept for compassion. You know, that, that wasn't a word that the ancient Greeks were using. So I guess maybe pity comes pretty close to what we would today say as compassion. But he says, you know, she has become inhuman. She has made this judgment that has rendered her, you know, almost inhuman by killing her own children. We should feel sorry for her. We should not be angry with her. We should, we should understand that she has, you know, harmed herself almost more than anyone else. So it's interesting, you know, that Epictetus is putting things in this way for the most heinous crime imaginable. And it's not what we would call forgiveness necessarily, 
but it is understanding. And I would say that it is also compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose there is some amount of debate about whether forgiveness is a concept uh, the Stoics have or should use. Uh, I had an earlier episode with Jeremy Reed, and he thinks we can talk reasonably. We can talk about Stoic forgiveness, even though there there's some some differences with the Stoic conception of forgiveness and, and the classical one. So if listeners want to learn more about that, they can check out that conversation or a later one I had with Michael on the same topic. But we didn't bring up the example of, in either of those conversations, uh, Medea. It is interesting how uh, much Epictetus in particular discusses her case. Um, and so when we say we, we feel compassion towards Medea here, does that amount to acknowledging that she's made a tragic mistake both for herself and for others and of, and of course not being angry about, is is that, is that the right attitude or, or is there more to it yeah i think so so he uses a similar word in talking about thieves and robbers so he says what does that mean thieves and robbers that they've fallen into error with regard to what is good and bad should we be angry with them then or merely feel pity for them so this is quite similar where he's saying you know they have injured themselves basically so the stoic viewpoint is that you know you derive good from your own character so if you do something to make your character worse you're harming yourself other mm -hmm. people are not harmed nearly as much as you're harming yourself and they talked about this in terms of comparing humans to animals epictetus and musonius rufus frequently said you're a beast you're becoming like a wolf or like a dog when you behave in this way so they contrasted what's best and most noble about humans, you know, our reasoning ability, our self-control, our virtue, our, our ability to step outside the situation and stick to our principles, as we mentioned earlier. And if you lose that, you lose your humanity. And I think just colloquially, we talk about this as well. You know, we talk about inhuman actions. When people become evil, we talk about them as inhuman or monsters or beasts. So I think this idea does resonate pretty well, even with some of our contemporary morality, even outside of Stoicism, that in order to be our best as humans, we need to, you know, stick to these ideals. And once we step outside that, it's just, you know, we've lost our humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I suppose there's recognizing when that, when that loss of humanity has occurred, the response to that isn't vindictive anger. It's a kind of acknowledging uh, that this, this is what happened, feeling some amount of pity, and then oh, oh, and seeking to, to use that to, to motivate whatever, whatever the right next step is or right uh, emotional responses. Right. And I should add that this doesn't preclude us from correcting people or, you know, if someone has committed a criminal act, they need to face justice, right? They need to be put in jail, that kind of thing. This is not saying that we should just not do anything and let people do whatever they want. Obviously, society cannot function that way. People should be held accountable for their actions, but it means that we approach it with a different attitude. So, you know, it, it's like we were talking about earlier, where when you are not under the sway of strongly negative emotions, you're able to act rationally and do what's best from a rational standpoint. It's the same here. So we wouldn't feel anger, but we would still take actions to prevent this from happening again. We still want to organize our society 
in a way that limits this as much as possible. But, you know, when this does happen, we show understanding, but we take steps to deal with it justly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Epictetus also uses the metaphor of especially vicious people are ill and should be seen as having a disease. And one wouldn't take a you know, morally vindictive attitude towards people who have a disease out of no fault of their own. But that but then there's the separate question, you know, what's the right way to manage people who are ill in this respect? That can be a complex matter, both in uh, these larger social, political type situations, but also, of course, in personal personal relationships. Right. Well, I suppose we, you, we have this idea of forgiving others, but there's also forgiving oneself and the role that not just forgiveness as well, but the role that compassion plays in one's relationship to oneself. How do you think uh, the Stoics can inform us about our relationship uh, with ourselves when it comes to compassion? Yes, we should definitely show compassion to ourselves for our mistakes. And I think this ranges from mistakes big and small. So, you know, if we set an intention for ourselves one day, you know, I'm I'm not going to get angry today with my coworker or when I'm sitting in traffic and then we maybe slip up one time, you know, we show ourselves compassion. It's not that we think it doesn't matter because it does matter. Um, Epictetus makes it clear that if you give in to anger once, you're more likely to give in the next time. So we redouble our efforts, but we don't, you know, blame ourselves. We don't say, oh, you know, I'm no good. I'm never going to get this, you know, and and think about ourselves in very strongly negative terms like that, we show ourselves compassion and say, you know, what I'm doing is very hard. This is one of the hardest things that anyone can do is to learn to overcome anger or whatever it is that you're working on, anxiety or guilt or any of those other negative emotions. So just keep it up, right? This positive self-discourse is extremely important. I mean, it does take a toll on you. If you are really harsh and critical towards yourself, that takes a toll on you mentally, emotionally. It discourages you from taking further action. So I think becoming aware of how we talk to ourselves is crucial. And this is where especially journaling can be very helpful. A lot of people don't even realize how negative they are towards themselves until maybe they sit down with a pen or a pencil in their hands and they start writing out this inner discourse. And then you can see on the paper, oh my goodness, you know, I would never talk to somebody else this way. Why am I talking to myself this way? And, you know, there are various reasons that we can do that. Sometimes we've been talked to that way in our past lives and we internalize it. Um, you know, sometimes we, we lack confidence or various reasons can cause this. But becoming aware of our overly harsh and critical stance towards ourselves is the first step towards taking a kinder and more compassionate approach. So again, you know, if you've messed up, you say, okay, I forgive myself for this. And Seneca actually models this. And um, many of the listeners probably know that Seneca was far from perfect. He certainly had a few things on his conscience, I would say. And he acknowledges this. He acknowledges many times that he's not perfect, that he's you know just a, a few steps ahead of the person he's advising. But nevertheless, he forgives himself for what he's done. So I think that's a great model for us. How does he do that? Like, what does that look like for, for Seneca? So where this comes up is he's talking about how he reviews his actions during the day. 
So again, this is another common stoic exercise where you might do some kind of meditation. It could be in the form of journaling or just a thought process at the end of the day. You review your day and say, okay, you know, how did I do today? Did I live up to my expectations for myself? Did I stick to my principles and ideals? Did I get angry? Was I kind? Did I demonstrate virtue in XYZ, whatever you were doing? And if not, you know, where did I go wrong? And how can I do better tomorrow? And so when Seneca is going through this process, he says explicitly, when he's talking to himself, he says, I forgive you, but do better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I think this is, you know, an excellent model for how we can talk to ourselves and acknowledgement that we messed up steps to make it right. You know, if you yelled at someone and you shouldn't have, then apologize. Don't just pretend it didn't happen, right? If you did something even more severe that you shouldn't have, take steps to make it right. It's on you. Hold yourself accountable. But once you've done that, that's all you can do. So this comes back to kind of the dichotomy of control. What can you control? Well, if it's in the past, you can't change the past and there's no sense in beating yourself up about it. What can you do? Well, you can change right now and you can change the future. So moving forward, how are you going to prevent yourself from reacting in a similar way? So it's up to you to develop strategies, to grow in your stoic practice, to grow as a person so that this doesn't happen again. But, you know, as long as you're making a concerted effort, recognize that it is a difficult process and then forgive yourself if you do mess up. Sometimes in my own practice, I feel like it's kind of the old adage of two steps forward, one step backward, and then two steps forward, one step backward. It's not a smooth, even trajectory. It's not as if you wake up every day and, you know, you do everything better than you did the day before. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. So I think, you know, when we talk about growing in our stoic practice and particularly in our interpersonal relationships and in showing compassion to others, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a years long process. Yes, years. So, you know, be patient with yourself and remember to show yourself compassion as well as all the people around you. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That patience is necessary for. Uh, making the improvements over over years. I think sometimes there's a thought that of, if I'm ambitious enough, if I'm tough on uh, tough enough on myself, I can do better, get there faster. And Michael talks a lot about how he sees us and people training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu where they show up and they think they have all these external goals. They just showed up. They're going to think I'm going to be in this spot in six months. Uh, and, and he often notices that those people often don't stick around as much because they either burn out or get discouraged. And it's the people who have the trait to show up day after day, uh, continue to do so even when life gets in their way without getting too discouraged, who in the athletic context tend, tend to perform. Uh, a lot, a lot better, and I think that's that's probably generally true for for most of our pr- pursuits. I agree. I love that analogy. So, how does how can meditation then? Uh, we've mentioned some about the practice of a review, this, uh, Seneca's evening review. But are there other meditative techniques we can use that may be useful in c- cultivating compassion? 
Well, we've talked a little bit about negative visualization, so I think you could definitely add that to your repertoire, whether you're meditating in the morning or the evening, um, you know, journaling. Also, as much as you can get involved in the Stoic community, you should do so. So just keeping these ideas fresh and at the front of your mind, I think, is essential to, you know, when you're in that moment and you're tempted to get angry or, you know, fall backwards away from your goals, you know, having those maxims and that practice just at your fingertips, so to speak, on the tip of your tongue, where you can say to yourself, no, you know, I made a commitment today. So just that continuous, you know, sticking with it, kind of like we were just talking about, I think that is crucial. So putting all of these together into a package, you know, I don't think it's just one particular exercise. I think it's mm -hmm. all of them put together that's going to make a difference. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's exactly right. Where there's different exercises for shifting perspective, who find people are going to find different exercises more valuable than others. Uh, people are different, get different mileage out of these kinds of meditative techniques. And then there's also the thought of you know, how do we keep these principles in mind, whether it's through reading the text, interacting with other people who take them seriously, and all of these uh, practices. And more, of course, uh, are what uh, Stoic practice looks like over the long term. Right. I will just mention that in the meditations that I put together, we kind of use some breathing techniques. So we involve physical activity as well. And of course, this is classic from kind of, you know, Buddhist meditation, but involving the breath and physical, you know, vis visualizing physical sensations of warmth, of light. So putting this together with your stoic practice, I think is extremely valuable. Obviously, you know, we're embodied creatures. So, you know, our mental experience takes place in a physical context. Our brain is inside our bodies. So I think if we can train our bodies to relax in a certain way, or we can have a certain physical response where, you know, when we're triggered by an external stressor, you know, we take a deep breath or we visualize something. So I think people will enjoy this series of meditations because it links physical techniques to stoic mental techniques. So, you know, I find this very helpful and I think listeners will as well. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I think it's been a great conversation and yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Of course. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for listening to Stoa Conversations. You can find the Deeper Connections series of meditations in the Stoa app. Just search Stoa, S-T-O-A, in the App Store or Play Store. And if you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to rate this podcast in the Apple Podcasts app or Spotify app as well. Until next time.